The following lecture was delivered at the 12th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe will now present his lecture, Am I Free to Be Me? Thank you all for coming. Whether it was something you chose or not, or you had any power over, is something we will discuss momentarily. Am I Free to Be Me uh, is really devoted to the question of how we relate to two core concepts in Judaism. I'll dive right in. The pace at the JLI National Retreat doesn't allow for long introductions and cute stories, so I'll dive right into the problem. One of the most fundamental principles of Judaism is the concept of Ashgacha Pratit, of specific divine guidance. And this means, even though there are different ways of looking at this concept, including not a small amount of debate, but what we all, what everyone understands, what we know from the Torah portion we just read last week, you have shown us to know that God is the source of all power, all creative power in the universe. Hashem Elokim, Einod Movado. There is nothing other than the existence of the divine. And the Kabbalists use the term which we will, the Ain Sof, the endless, the undefinable. There is a single reality, as Maimonides puts it. Mamita Timatso, from the truth of its being, Nimtsu, everything in the world is created. There is one reality, there is one essence, and everything in the world is an extension of it. As Maimonides goes on to say, that were the whole world not to exist, the Ain Sof would still exist. But if the Ain Sof did not exist, nothing else could exist. And we delve into Kabbalah and Hasidic thought. What's clear is that creation is an ongoing process. In other words, it's not something that happened, but it's a projection on a screen, as if it were. And uh, the spiritual logic of the idea is obvious. If we begin with absolutely nothing, the, that nothing has to come from somewhere. So it follows that there exists a reality that transcends somethingness or nothingness, something that is always there. And from that being, from that reality, creation ex nihilo happens. From that reality, something happens that we call creation, that we call our existence. Since this reality is the stuff of creation, it pre-exists creation, it follows there's nothing but it. This is a concept that is fundamental to Judaism, without which none of existence, certainly none of Judaism is possible. That's one core idea. 
The other core idea is that from the very moment uh, that God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from a certain tree and that they're supposed to tend the garden, the concept of free will, that we are free to choose between right and wrong, between good and evil, between moral and immoral, and so on, that we have absolute freedom, no one forces us to do one thing or the other, which is why when Cain is entertaining the possibility of murdering Abel, God says that, yes, at the doorway of your heart, sin crouches. You may rule it. You could rule it if you want to. And, of course, all the concepts of accountability and agency and the whole purpose of having 613 commandments or the seven general commandments that the children of Noah, that all of humanity have, only makes sense if people are free to choose and therefore can be held accountable and held responsible for what they do. Furthermore, if we are not free to choose, there's really no point in creating us because we don't actually do anything. We're programmed. And what's the point of creating entities that will simply do something that they were programmed to do in the first place. It's not like God is bored and needs uh, entertainment. So there exists really a fundamental, a seemingly fundamental contradiction uh, between these two concepts. There we are. So I'm going to leave this up here for a while. So to understand, to understand this issue, we first need to begin with an understanding, a deeper understanding of the problem. So if creation is an ongoing process, in other words, nothing is the normal state of things, nothing being really the existence of the ain't self as it exists to itself. So therefore... When, that, when the abnormal state of creation is created, which means to say, when the Ein Sof chooses to be us, to be this room, to be the stuff of every tree, of every planet, of every galaxy, of every spiritual world, that is a constant process of choice, and everything consciously flows from the Ein Sof at every moment. At every moment, God is choosing to be everything. And the movement of every molecule, of every electron, of every neuron in our brains is being consciously created by the infinite source of all at every moment. That sounds like some pretty heavy programming. So where's our free will? So to understand that, we need to understand that sometimes the answer to a problem is the problem itself. The problem itself that we're facing is that everything is inherently the ain't self and it is inherently being everything at every moment. But that also means that both those things that we would refer to as the ain't self revealing itself, prophecy, the giving of the Torah, the existence of everything at every moment, 
And the concealment, the fact that we don't feel this, that we don't see this, that we can go through our life and completely ignore it. This idea, you don't need it to exist. You could go through life and imagine that every object in this room and my body and everything in the universe just happens to be there. There is absolutely nothing about anything in the physical world, if we do not look deeply, that says, I am an extension of the will of an infinite and united reality. If you dig deeper, you ask, where do things come from? What's the source of everything? Who designed this incredibly intricate and amazing universe and biome and so on? But if you don't ask those questions, there's nothing about my hand, about the table, about the rock, about the moon, that actually tells us anything other than, oh, I'm here, this is it. And that is because the Ein Sof is expressed in two ways. Revelation, which means to say its power creates realities, communications, existences, but also he'elem, concealment, which means to say, and this Rameir of Ingabai, the great Spanish Kabbalist, says that if you were to say that the Ein Sof has the power to be infinite and not the power to be finite, you're negating its completeness. In other words, to imprison something in a description is to limit it. For the Ein Sof to only be infinite and not to be present in the finite, A, that creates the problem, how do you have a finite universe? But B, it means to say that you're telling God that you can only be infinite. That is a prison, that is a limitation. It seems strange to use the term limitation for infinity, but it is. It's a description which excludes other things. What's the definition of a limitation? A description which excludes something. If I say that the ain't self is infinite, the end, that it's, it's endless and without form, but it's infinite, and it can't be finite, so then I am saying it can be one thing and not another. But rather the Ein Sof is an is a indescribable but very real existence that is neither caught up in infinite or being finite, and it's both and none at the same time. It's one of those paradoxes that we can't get our brains around, but nevertheless we know it must be true. Because everything must come from somewhere, Yet we are here as limited and defined beings, and those beings and those objects don't say anything at all about their source. So the Kabbalists explain that, and it's actually alluded to in the story of creation in the Torah itself, that essentially you see this circle here. There is a space of finiteness created by the Ein Sof. We call this symptom contraction. Some of you may know that uh, a German spy ring that was transmitting information about sensitive military projects of the United States before it entered the war, uh, and there were still diplomatic relations, was caught entirely by chance when someone noticed that a letter that had passed through uh, some, uh, some German uh, citizen's hand had a tiny little extra dot somewhere. That dot turned out to be a micro dot. 
in which you, which works basically like microfilm, you take several dozen pages and shrink them to the size of a tiny dot. That was the limit of technology at that time. But all the information was there. It could only be seen with a special microscope, a special reader. And that is what Simtsum is. The Ein Sof doesn't change. But with regards to creation, it hides its capacity to reveal and reveals its capacity to conceal. Again, because the Ein Sof is not imprisoned in any description, God's absence is just another form of God's presence. So when we look at this world around us and we see only a world and we have to think and choose and sometimes have faith to perceive its godliness, or the idea that there is a God at all, this concept is a product of Tzimtzum, that God reveals his capacity to be concealed, and since everything that God does is perfect, it is a perfect concealment. You could go through life if you only look at things superficially and never accept as anything other than the material of the world in front of us. And into this zone of concealment, God places the universe and ourselves. Because of this, it is possible for us to either dig deeper and say there is a purpose, there is a source, and if there is a purpose and a source, the source must have communicated us, ergo the Torah, must have communicated with us at some point, or you have the choice to just accept everything as it appears as face value. This is possible in this zone, but this doesn't answer the other question. Granted, it's like a one-way mirror where, where the Ain Sof is us, but we don't perceive that we are an extension of the Ain Sof. But nevertheless... The fact remains that the Ein Sof is the stuff of our being and creating us at every moment. So how can we be free to choose? So here we come to a very challenging concept. And the particularly challenging concept is as follows. We often think of freedom as an absence of control, right? You think about freedom, you think, oh, I'm free to do what I want. When I'm a little kid, my parents make me go to bed and brush my teeth, then I grow up and I don't have anyone making me do those things. It's, it's my choice. I'm free. I am not controlled. I am outside any control. I am outside any force. Think of something floating in space. But in Judaism, Freedom of will, our freedom to choose, is not a power of absence. It is a form of divine presence. In other words, your freedom is not an absence of divine control, a space from which God has exited. That's the easy answer, but since, again, there's nothing but the Ein Sof, and the absence of the Ein Sof to us is simply another form of presence. So it follows that our, our perceived freedom, it's not, a, it's not an illusion, it's real freedom, as we'll see in a moment, 
but its, its texture is not an absence of control. It is a form of presence, a form of control. What do I mean? So if we accept that everything is formed from the Ein Sof, what is the one overriding characteristic the Ein Sof has? That since it is everything, it is free to create or not to create. Had the Ein Sof not created, not chose to create a universe, the Ein Sof wouldn't be missing anything. It is completely free and always complete whatever it does. Yes, universe, no universe is exactly the same to the Ein Sof. The Ein Sof was free and chose to create a universe. That, and therefore, freedom only exists in the realm of the Ein Sof. It only exists in the realm of the divine. When the human being is created in God's image, that means to say that that quality of freedom, which is an entirely a divine quality, is given to us. In other words, it is a form of divine presence, not a form of divine absence. God gives us the choice, not of course to create or not to create, but to acknowledge creation, to acknowledge the ain't self, which means I look at this world around me and set it as meaning and it has purpose, and therefore I follow how the Torah tells me to treat other people, how the Torah tells me to live with myself, because I choose to acknowledge that everything in the universe is congealed godliness, as if it were. And I have the ability to unfreeze it and to reveal its life-giving water, its life-giving reality. Money isn't just money, it's tzedakah. Business is a chance to fulfill the mitzvot of honesty. And every communication with a human being is a chance to fulfill the revelation of God's will that exists in the way he asks us to speak. And the same with eating and sleeping and the passage of time and every life cycle event. We create by acknowledging the creation that we're completely free to deny. Now, again, this is not an absence of the presence of the Ein Sof. The ability to create or not to create, which in our world is reflected. This is a perfect divine quality reflected in us. And whether we choose good or we choose the opposite, we are expressing the Ein Sof. Now, obviously, God chose to create a universe that we choose the right thing. But if we could not choose the wrong thing, the right thing would be meaningless. In other words, God chose to need us. Because once God chose to create a universe, there's one thing God cannot do. God could choose to create or not to create. What's the human experience of not creating? Denying. We have the power to deny. God chose to give us the power to deny, which means that God chose to need us because the one thing God cannot do is deny his own existence. But we can. And, this, and by acknowledging God's existence we now do something that God chose to need us for. But this is all part of God's being because the ability to deny is the equivalent in the human. It's a reflection of the divine quality of not creating. Whatever God didn't create doesn't exist. God could have chosen not to create a universe. And therefore, choice 
Free choice is not an absence of divine control. It's a form of divine control. Whatever you choose is the presence of God's freedom within you. And you can choose to get it right. You can choose the hard way. And there's a lot of things we go through spiritually in this world, in other lives, and we'll keep coming back till we get it right. Maimonides once stated that everyone is free to choose, but this doesn't mean that the Torah can't predict that people will do bad things. He says it's like a city. If I tell you that a city of a certain size will have 100 thefts in a year, those statistics tend to stand. Does that statistical reality force anyone to steal? No, they have free will to steal or not. The fact is that statistics exist on a level disconnected from the micro. The macro exists on a level disconnected from the micro. It's counterintuitive, but this is as proven a fact of human knowledge as could possibly be proven. There are thousands and thousands of instances that this is the case. And therefore, it is inevitable that we will get it right. But we will get it right of our own free will, however many journeys and reincarnations and so on we have to go through. So it's a lot better to choose to get it right the first time. But all choice is the presence of the Ain Sof, and you are not absent of God's control. It is a form of control. In other words, absolute freedom is a form of God's presence because you are free as God is free. There is no space where God is not because your freedom is a divine texture. It's a divine quality. It's a positive quality, not a negative quality. This is what Judaism, in particular Jewish mysticism, brings to the table. It's a positive quality. It's a presence. And the absolute freedom is, is an actual presence of the divine in a very, very powerful way. Which is why it says that when God created the universe, he saw it was tov mode at the end of creation, very good. Says the Midrash, tov, good. This is, this is well, tov, this is everything he created. Tov mode, very good, depending on which version of the Midrash. This is the angel of death. This is the Satan. The very essence of evil is very good. You know why? Because without evil, good is absolutely meaningless. Without the capacity to reject everything, accepting God is a meaningless activity. God might as well not create the universe. So our capacity to choose the wrong thing is what, is what gives our capacity to choose the right thing meaning. And that is the inner reason why the wor- anything can be transformed to good by the process of tshuva, of repentance, of returning to God, because my ability to choose evil is simply a reflection of God's existence. When I say, hey, I want to do what I'm here for, and I don't want to go through ten more incarnations, I don't want to, and I don't want to go through all the stuff discussed in various Kabbalistic texts, and more importantly, I see myself as an extension of God, and I value the fact that God chose to need me and can't finish the work without me, I say, hey. So when I recognize that, all the negativity becomes part of the good because the capacity to choose is all good. And the capacity to choose evil is what makes the good real because, again, God chose to need us. This is the key point. 
Now, this brings several important ramifications with it. Since the purpose of creation is that we choose the good, it follows that since God created each one of us, we all have a unique purpose. So how do we get to the place where we have the capacity to choose good or evil? How do we get there? And that's what's up. You see where it says the seed? There is an axis of free will and an axis of determinism. God puts us where we need to be to have that choice. You're in the grocery store, and someone is attempting to negotiate a packet of coupons from Bolivia printed in 1967. And it's almost Shabbat, and you're annoyed, and you're going to blow your top at this person, but you don't. That's the axis. God put you here on this world not to lose your temper or to choose to, to be honest, to stop what you're doing when Shabbat comes in. Whatever it is, you got, you know, 613 kinds of choices. But the particular choice we make is unique to us. God puts us in a unique place by determinism. Because again, everything but our free will about good or evil is controlled by God. So here's the point. We make a lot of choices in life. Not all of those are free choices. The axis of determinism, you think you chose what career to follow. You thought about it. You chose it. But that choice is not entirely free. Because as many people who complain about free will say... Look at all the environmental things, your genetics, your neurons, how they're programmed. It's true. Basically, there are millions of forces in the world. And God exquisitely balances them so you're floating in a space, all forces being equal, you know, like that point between the earth and moon where the gravity is, is balanced out as you get real close to the moon, whatever it is. So there's a perfect balance of forces, and you're completely free at that moment. But that perfect balance happens in our choices between right and wrong. So you can choose, you can choose, you know, there are some people you should marry, some you shouldn't. But you didn't really choose who you married. Sorry, people, if you're married. You didn't really choose which career to follow. You chose it, but it wasn't a totally free choice. You were programmed. Unless, of course, the career is thief or mass murderer God forbid, or whatever. Uh, but the but but the wet but the choices we have in our career, the choices we have in our relationships, the choices we have as we happen to have gotten distracted and gone down another road. Those choices, when they're between right and wrong, they're real which creates a fascinating contradiction, or shall we say upside-downness, in human life. Typically speaking, we, but we assign as inevitable those things we can control, and imagine we control the things we can't control. Uh, does anyone here know what Apple stock was trading for in 1993? Five bucks a share. Before any split. So I don't know if they split since then. But if you bought it, you bought it those 20 years ago, uh, you would be able to give lots and lots of charity today. Even if you only put, say, two, $3,000 in. 
So a lot of people kick themselves, why didn't I buy Apple in 1993? A lot of people kick themselves, why did I choose this job and not that job? Hopefully no one kicks themselves why they married their spouse. But there's a lot of things and we get frustrated and it gives us aggravation and stress and high blood pressure. If I only would have done this, I only, you know what? In the end, it was a choice you made. And you had to do your due diligence because part, one of the mitzvot in the Torah is to make a living and be a useful person in the world and get married and so on. But in the end, there's too much that's programmed. But on the other hand, when it comes to right and wrong, we say, oh, I can't control myself to lash out at a person. I can't control my anger. I just can't get up in the morning to come to a, to a minion. I, you know, uh, honesty just doesn't come to me. I'm just really good at scamming people. And so on. And the truth is that those things we tell ourselves we can't control, we have complete control over. Because God put us here with the power to make that choice. And that is the most godly thing about us, this capacity to choose freely. God put you in this seed, in this perfect equilibrium between your creating an axis of free will because God is suspending you in that space. And all the things you think you do control, how much money you have, uh, where you live, whether you took the wrong, you, you took the longest line in the check, to the checkout counter, which somehow always happens, uh, whether, you know, whatever, you brought the wrong car, whatever it may be, you didn't control any of that. You chose and you had to do due diligence, but you didn't control any of that. And that means that at a certain point, for example, in my work, say I'm a lawyer, I prepared a brief, I did due diligence, I did my job properly, don't go back and look at it another 10 more times. You don't control what's going to happen in court. You do the best you can reasonably and go spend some time with your children, go study some Torah, go do some volunteer work in the community, and so on. This abstract idea can completely transform our lives and free us from a lot of internally generated stress. It won't stop you from sitting in traffic. It won't stop you from dealing with whatever you have to deal with in your health and so on. But it will stop you from this I should have, could have, would have that poisons our whole being. And on the other hand, when we seem a seemingly insurmountable mountain to climb, when we know the Torah asks us of something of us, and it's so hard, we know we have the power to break through and accomplish it. Our life is turned over for the positive when we appreciate this. Now, this of course raises another problem. There are many accounts in the Torah and the prophets and the Talmud and the Midrashim and Hasidic stories that seem to indicate that we actually have a degree of control over our lives. It would seem, again, God gives us a certain amount of years, God puts us in a certain range of situations, God gives us a certain amount of resources, and we choose between right and wrong. How does it appear from the Torah and many other places that our choices and our good deeds and so on can influence the outcome of our life if that's part of the axis of determinism? So for this, we need this diagram. Famous story, Rabbi Akiva's daughter, an astrologer who in those days apparently were a little bit better than the people who appear in the newspaper, the people that Nancy Reagan, a blessed memory, used, and so on. 
We're in California, so we have to say nice things. It was their state. Um, but at any rate, this astrologer tells Rabbi Akiva, your wonderful little girl here, she's going to grow up to be brilliant and beautiful, and she's going to get married. And on the night of her wedding, she's going to die. Well, there's a wedding, and Rabbi Akiva's daughter gets married. And the next morning, you know, they have this little apartment. She comes out of the apartment, white as a sheet, and tells her parents, you know, come see what me and my husband, new husband, found. So back then, they didn't have uh, the container store. So what people did with things they needed to store is they stuck them in the wall. You know, you stuck a stake in the wall, the walls were all made of plaster, and you hung things on it. And if you had something sharp, you just stuck it in the wall. So to hold her hair together at the wedding, she had, you can see these in, in the in museums, one of the best places to understand Torah, prophets, writings, uh, Talmud, Mishnah, and, uh, and all the things we read about in the response of the medieval rabbis, go to the British Museum. Coins and objects and stones and writing, everything you read about in all these books comes alive. Great place. I mean, they stole it from everywhere, but for us it's convenient. Now it's all there. So at any rate, you know, so they have hairpins like this, big, beautiful gold hairpins. Uh, and uh, she had this big, beautiful gold hairpin. And before she went to sleep, she stuck it in the wall. She wakes up in the morning, and there's a viper, a poisonous snake, which is common in Israel. There's a viper with the gold pin right through its eyes, going through its brain case. It was hovering on a ledge, you know, a little ledge over her bed, and apparently might have killed her. So Rabbi Akiva remembered the astrologer, and he asked his daughter, did you do anything special last night? And she said, well, not really. I didn't do anything special. She said, oh, yeah. Um, there was this person who came to the wedding. And you know, they, as you know, you'll see this even in, in religious weddings and Orthodox weddings to this day. They always make a table in all, the, in all the Jewish neighborhoods, Crown Heights, Borough Park, and Jerusalem. They make a table for anyone who's hungry to come and eat. That's what you do at a wedding. You don't just celebrate for yourself. You feed, every, you feed whoever is hungry. So there was a table for the poor, uh, an open buffet, as if it were. But there was one poor person who came in. He was raggedy. He was smelly. He was covered with sores, and no one wanted to get near him. So no one let him near the table. So I saw it. I felt bad for him. So I took my portion, and I gave it to him. And of course, as you know, the custom always was that people fasted on the day of their wedding. So... Rabbi Akiva told her that in the merit of your going the extra mile to be charitable when no one could have asked you to notice it, you know, on the night of your wedding, this saved your life. Now, what does this mean? So essentially, one of the aspects of the fact that we have free will is that God programs multiple lives for us. Think of a chess game, right? Once you make the first move, there are several million possibilities. But there is a limited number of possibilities. So God's chessboard may be almost infinite. 
But God has programmed every possibility for every choice you make. It's all there. It's all there. It's all providential. So Rabbi Akiva's daughter's life model said that life number zero, at the age of 20 or so, she's going to hit that wall. Like an airplane, it can't get enough altitude, it smashes into a mountainside. But if she adds energy to her life, if she chooses to incorporate more godliness into her life, like this charitable act, so then there's a different life programmed for her. Again, all programmed, all set out, but she's choosing a different life, which is longer in which you get more done. You don't have to come back so many times. And God forbid this life minus one, someone could make some really horrible choices and end up with less than, shall we say, the default. But these choices do not create our lives. They're merely free choices so powerful. We choose one of the lives that has been programmed from the beginning. It's like, you know, computer programming language, literally. If this, then that. If you do this, then that. If you do this, well, then you're going to have to come back six more times, and so on. But the one thing we control, again, is our choice between right and wrong, because in that, we are divine. And in that, God has chosen to need us. And most of all, in that, we are terribly important. Once God chose to create the universe, he can't do it without us. Every one of us is incredibly important. Every choice we make is incredibly important. And we're all of equal value in that context. All these ideas emerge from this fundamental rectification of this seeming contradiction. I want to take the few minutes we have left to take questions, complaints, arguments, brickbats, and so on. Yes? So you were talking about how there are all these forces that face us our path and how, you know, they can move in all different directions. And um, I was wondering, you know, what about, you know, people who do become murderers or terrorists? Like, you know, why would Hashem place these forces in their lives so that we can do so? So first of all, evil why, what exactly measure of evil God sees as necessary is a, mis- is a mystery that we get answered at the end of days. But the fact is, for good to have meaning, evil has to exist. Even the fact that someone might use religion for evil purposes, because since the most powerful and important thing of all is to be godly, that capacity has to have an opposite, an evil twin, as if it were. So people... So people make choices, and it's interesting. You see that even in societies where people are trained this way, not all of them, most of them don't make evil choices. And the ones who do know they're choosing evil. There is a, there is a Holocaust scholar named Beryl Lang, tremendous scholar, um, who wrote some really original books about the Holocaust. One of his books explores the fact that unlike what a lot of people have said, that the Nazis sort of brainwash themselves and really believe what they're doing was good. He demonstrates numerous proofs, documents, conversations, that clearly showed that they knew what they were doing was wrong. They may have said excuses, but they knew what they were doing was wrong. They chose, to, they chose the evil. 
My point is, is that people become this way because there's enormous good possible in the universe, and therefore there's enormous evil possible, because one has to balance the other. So people choose to be murderers. People choose to be heroes. People choose to save lives. People choose to destroy them. But in the end, what they control is their choice. They don't control the outcomes. Someone could do his best to murder someone and not succeed because it's not in the program. But what I think is crucial is the reason Hashem makes evil possible. This we know. We don't know why anyone has to suffer. You know, let everyone just choose to do evil but not succeed. We have no answer for suffering until the end of days. That's one of the concealments in that zone of concealment that we talked about. Oh, well, we'll get to it later. Um, you know, that, that dark space. What God explains to us, we know. What God doesn't explain to us, we don't know. But how is it possible for people to choose evil? The same, not only the same way it's possible for them to choose good. If they could not choose evil, our good would be meaningless. And by evil existing, when we choose good, it's incredibly meaningful precisely because evil is so prevalent in the world. So when you look at that, don't just look at these people with contempt or sorrow or pity. Look at them as a reversed mirror. You know, and all of you never saw a negative in your lives. You know, you've grown up with digital photography. But think of it as the negative of which each one of us can be the positive. I'm going to come to you just back in a circle. So, yes, please. Yeah. Uh, well, right before this, we were talking about um, the kind of terrorist who, who stabbed somebody else and tried to kill him, but it, and he ended up having like, broken his body and he saved his life. So I'm interested in like, hearing what, how do you say, like, how would somebody's choice do evil? Well, it falls into the chart that, again, we only control our choices. We don't control outcomes. In other words, if, you know, someone can do your best to kill you and save your life, or vice versa. Someone could do a life-saving operation, and something goes wrong, and the person dies. In other, we don't control outcomes. We control choices. So how is it possible? Because God chose at that moment that this person's, that this growth be revealed. In other words, one of the, this is actually the story you bring is a very, very good uh, segue into, into the following very crucial point. I can choose to stab someone and kill them, but if God wants that person to live, my knife will slip on a rib, and instead I'll discover a cancerous growth. We, cho we choose, and God holds us accountable for what's in our heads. You, a court, human court can't, but God can. God holds us accountable for our choices, but the outcome of our choices we don't at all control. So what you describe is perfectly commensurate with this idea. We only control our choices. Everything else goes back to the axis of determinism. I can, you know, and it works the other way too. Let's say I have this anger and I want to chuck a brick at a person. And I control myself and I don't. So if that person is meant to get a bump on their head, a brick will fall off a building and land on them. Something else will happen. In other words, in this complex 
incredibly multi-threaded universe God created, since at this moment I need to have a test of my anger, and at the same moment this person needs a bump on their head. I don't, I don't know the reason for human suffering, but they need a bump on their head for, you know, or God needs this to happen for reasons known only to the Almighty. No, no sensible person has any explanation for human suffering. But what happens is, this is meant, this is intersected. Because I need the test, and that person, and if I, if I pass the test and don't chuck the brick, so then the person got a bump on their head some other way. But there is, as if it were, and part of the reason for this is in order that we be able to be confused, that we be able to imagine that people have more power than we do, right? We have to have the ability to deny this whole system. We have to have the ability to reject it. So we have to imagine that the bump on the head came from me throwing the brick. God forbid. Which actually isn't the case. But the world has to... I always tell people, you know, I spent a lot of time high school, high school students uh, on campus, and a lot of times people say, well, give me an absolute proof for God's existence. I said, if I had an absolute proof that was so, as obvious as one plus one equals two then there'd be no purpose in existence at all. We have to be able to deny. We have to be able to imagine that you have power to hurt me. Because if we can't imagine a world that is untrue, the truth has no meaning because we're not choosing it. It's automatic. That's why good deeds can only be done in this world when you have the capacity to choose evil. In the next world, when you see the truth, there's no good to be done because there's no choice. You had a question, yes? So I would, so first of all, sometimes people are caught up in a force of nature. What do I mean to say? You know, so for example, if you put people in an army, they're going to march and they're going to shoot and they're going to kill people and so on. And it's very hard to say that they have a choice. And that's like an insane person, God forbid, right? Someone is criminally insane. They're not responsible for their actions. They're not a person choosing to do evil. They're like a heart attack or a typhoon or an earthquake. I don't know why God makes those natural disasters. But that wasn't a choice. That being said, actually, I would say the opposite. You know, there's all this argument if you look at communities that produce terrorists, you know, are most people good? The reality is that even places steeped in that ideology, the vast majority of people don't behave that way and don't do those things. Because God created us to keep his laws, whether it's the Torah, the seven Noahide laws, and we're programmed that way. That's why even in societies steeped in anti-Semitism for thousands of years, like Poland, like Germany, and so on, you did occasionally find people who rebelled against the way they were programmed. But someone does what they're programmed again. That's like some terrible storm, some terrible force of nature. That people actually can see, like Professor Lang says, that what they're doing is wrong, no matter how deeply they're programmed, and can choose. Some people are too cowardly or too don't, you know, rise, find the strength within them. But the fact is that even if we don't believe in God, God believes in us, which means to say there's a spark of the divine in every human being, 
and they can activate it. And I think that's why even in places steeped in these things and where, you know, Jewish blood became perfectly free, some people rose to heroism. And now, even in places that are deeply steeped in these very negative ideologies, a lot of people find the decency not to behave this way. So I would say that what we're seeing in the world demonstrates that this, this, this freedom that we have, even if we have a really bad education, and even if we're taught things that are fundamentally untrue. No, not to appreciate that good have meaning because it's chosen. Wouldn't that contradict the, uh, the future of a messianic age where bad is supposed to happen? So here we have to go back to the statistics thing. Statistically speaking, as I mentioned, we're all going to get it right sooner or later and more than that. It's very important to know that we don't need a perfect world. We don't all have to be perfect. We just need a critical mass of good. You know, when you get a critical mass of some fissile material and the, the chain reaction starts and the atoms start splitting apart and releasing, releasing incredible amounts of energy, so once you have that, the whole thing doesn't have to go at once. Once you have enough and, the, and, a, and a few neutrons start popping around, you have your atomic reaction, you have your fission, and all the energy it releases. So too in a positive way. We need a critical mass of good. We don't need the, every, the whole universe to reveal its inherently godly nature. We just need some of that dark, cold matter to be transformed into light. And, it's a, and, and it's a, there's a finite measure of it, which means to say when we tell people that the mitzvah you do next is going to bring the messianic age, it's absolutely true because there's a certain amount of good that needs to be created. And since it's absolute, the mitzvah I did a year ago or you did, you're going to do tomorrow is an intrinsic part of that. Subtract that. You don't have the critical mass. Add it, you do. But the point is, is that the, it's inevitable, statistically speaking, that we'll get to this good place. But as we discussed before with Maimonides, one of the earliest people in history to talk about statistics this way, the fact that it's inevitable doesn't mean that it's not a completely free choice. This paradox is fundamental to existence, and one can say it's fundamental to nature precisely because it's fundamental to the idea that concealment and revelation, God's presence and God's absence, are both true and both part of the same and self of the same God. So it doesn't contradict it at all. It simply means that when we inevitably get there, it will be completely because of our choice. It'll be completely because we chose to do what God chose to need us for. So the eradication of that negative, that bad, won't diminish the meaning of the good? No, because the... Because, again, God and our existence stand beyond time, which means to say that especially once we reach an era where we're united with godliness, all of time stands before us as one. So all the difficulties and challenges and hard choices are there, and the result of them is there. It doesn't diminish it because once you get beyond time and space, 
even though we're living time and space. But once you get beyond those limits, you experience everything as a single whole, and therefore it's all there. It's all there. That being said, there is something special about this time because now is where we're actually creating the redemption. The experience of it is the experience of it. But now we're creating it, and that's why we embrace the darkness because we know that this darkness we have to travel through is simply another form of God's presence. And acknowledging that is in itself one of the ways we transform existence. Yes. Well, so the interplay works. Again, God creates a a universe with multiple paths, multiple possibilities. When you, you, in other words, let's say you choose the negative. You're simply choosing a more convoluted path that might involve a degree of annoyance of reincarnation and so on and so forth. But you're choosing a path which ultimately you'll get another choice and another choice until you get it right. You're just choosing a more convoluted and painful path. But the, but the free will is you get to choose the path. You don't get to choose the outcome because by your own free will you'll get it right, statistically speaking. But it's better to do, get it right the first time. But, but uh, that's the interplay. Again, one of the beauties of the modern world we live in is that these paradoxical sophistications are part of of everything we do. It's, we, it's part of nature. The interplay between a, a rule, a, a pattern of nature that is built on uncertainty is how we understand the universe. And as um, Rabbi Branover, Dr. Branover actually, the, uh, the great, uh, should be, well, he's quite old, but he's one of the pioneers in the fields of Torah and science. He pointed out to me once, we were walking you know, it's during the month of Tishrei, we're walking to 770 together, and he tells me, you know, that the idea of uncertainty and chaos provide the windows to which divine providence can reach and manipulate the world without breaking any laws of nature. And spiritually speaking, we live in that same kind of chaotic world. In a good way, good chaos. Like Chabad. Yes. yes um, and taking to the next step, we have an ability and a choice to help other people. Questions to what degree? To do what? To help other people make good choices. So on one hand, you have to know, like Dara says, somebody's in a fire or burning house, you go, you save them. On the other hand, they have also free choice. And the question is, do you have anything? So, so in other words, it's, it's your, it, you have the choice to help. Yeah. And, that, and that, be, that becomes part of the input. What degree is, uh, is our responsibility to help somebody else make a choice? It's our, it's our responsibility. In other words, there are things we can't do to help someone, right? Halakha. That's what Allah is for. Jewish law basically gives us all the patterns to know, you know, what are the patterns, what are the roles of this choice. Sometimes you can't help someone. But basically, to the extent that Judaism demands of us that we make the effort to help and to advise and so on, that becomes one of that person's input. For you, it's a choice. For the person, it's one of the inputs that God designed for them. And let's say, uh, like a simple example, for instance, um, somebody was telling me, she's very upset that um, Nathaniel's wife is being um, taken to court. Okay. So she was saying we should make um, an uproar, or the rabbi should be defending, talking about how... Okay, so let me... So, so in terms of things like political action and the like, again, it's a question... Uh, but but she's saying, yeah, 
In other words, are we obliged to protest injustice, assuming it's an injustice? Yeah. Are we supposed to put our energy into what both the laws of nature and the Torah say might be affected? Yes, and so on. So for example, uh, should I necessarily travel to New York to demonstrate against the UN because it's a mitzvah to care for my brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael? Maybe not, because the impact might not be that great, and there's lots of people in New York who can go, don't live so far away. On the other hand, uh, when, my, when our local high school in Newton, Massachusetts, uh, this happened you know, sort of not long before I came, uh, started using textbooks that said the vilest untruths about the, Jew, about the, the, Jew, the Jewish behavior and rights to the land of Israel and so on, made all kinds of unsubstantiated claims of atrocity and so on, and 14, 15, and 16 year olds were studying this as a matter of course, people who lived in Newton were precisely the people who do something about it because they're taxpayers, they're voters, and they have influence. And this is both a practical question and a halachic question. So my point is, is that even in terms of what good things we spend our energy on, we seek the guidance of the wisdom of Torah, of Halakha, of Musa, of Chassidus, to answer those questions. Because the question is, what is my mission? What is my, what is my axis? What is the seed where the axis of determinism and free choice meet? That's in itself something that we need Torah for. Yes? I repeat, the question is that since we're supposed to serve God with happiness, what happens if there are things that I know God asks me don't make me happy? And therefore, the question is, should we put ourselves first or put God's first? And if we put God first, is not making us almost robotic. So I'm going to go backwards. Since we have a choice, that's not robotic. In other words, to choose to do what's right is not the same as not to. Secondly, the question of happiness, there are a lot of levels of happiness. You, 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 know, you tell a three-year-old happiness, they'll think, they'll think a... Uh, They'll think, you know, a room full of candy. Um, you know, you tell that to someone who's in their, who's in their 20s and stopped growing already, uh, they'll be thinking about, about how much they're going to weigh if they eat all that candy, right? Happiness really depends where you're holding. Um, some person is made happy by candy. Another person, as they get older and more mature, is made happy by knowledge and so on. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.